This is the World War II Radio Podcast. A date which will live in infamy. This is London. We shall fight in the hills. We shall never surrender. Go ahead, Berlin. This is the National Broadcasting Company. World War II radio podcast. Today we have an NBC News special report on the breaking news of the Allied attack on Dieppe, France, as it first aired over the network on August 19, 1942. While initial reports on the raid indicated success, it was widely considered to be a failure, with Allied forces having to retreat within hours of reaching the shore. Of the roughly 6,000 Allied men who were involved in the attack, More than 3,600 were killed, captured, or wounded. And the Royal Air Force lost more than 100 planes in the battle as well. However, while the Dieppe raid itself was a failure, it did provide important lessons the Allies would apply in the D-Day attacks less than two years later. The World War II Radio Podcast is a Brick Bickle Media production. If you like the show, please leave feedback on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. And be sure to visit our website at brickpicklemedia.com slash podcasts, where you can find links to past episodes, as well as the books featured in our podcasts. So thanks for listening. Enjoy today's episode of the World War II Radio Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. The National Broadcasting Company interrupts its regular program schedule to bring its listeners a report direct from London on that great commando raid on the French coast, which is still going on. In a few moments, we hope to take you to London for the report of our NBC observer there, Robert St. John. First, however, here's a brief picture of the situation. At dawn today, American, British, French, and Canadian troops stormed ashore at Dieppe, carrying their own tanks and protected overhead by the greatest umbrella of aerial force ever seen anywhere. There were thousands of bomber and fighter planes, including American warplanes. Fighting was still going on heavily at 10.30 a.m. New York time, and presumably still is, although some British commando units have returned to England, taking their wounded with them. Meanwhile, our flying fortresses have attacked the nearby French port of Abbeville in great force. Abbeville is a base for German fighter planes, but now it lies in ashes for the most part. And for a first-hand report, we take you now to London. This is London. That great commando attack on Nazi-occupied France has been going on all day. As far as we know, the furious fighting is still in progress right now as darkness approaches in France. As far as we know, British tanks are still roaring around the French coastal area of Dieppe. There has been no announcement yet about the return of any of the invading force. It's been and is the greatest military contest on French soil since the evacuation from Dunkirk. But of course, it's not invasion, not the opening of a second front. But the Germans themselves admit it's much more pretentious 
than anything the commandos have ever attempted before. They admit they're having a tough time fighting off the invaders. It hasn't been just a one-dimensional operation. The fight has been on land, on sea, and in the air. On land, we know it was principally a Canadian show. But a small number of American Rangers also did take part, as well as British troops and some fighting French. In the air, two squadrons of flying fortresses played a vital part in the operation. They did some high-level bombing of the Nazi fighter base at Abbeville during the day. Now, Abbeville is only a few minutes flying time from Dieppe. That American bombing of Abbeville severely handicapped the Germans in fighting off the commandos by air. The American flyers saw many fires blazing on the Nazi fighter field before they started home. They got back without the loss of a single fortress. And just a few minutes ago, I got this comment from a British fighter pilot who accompanied the fortresses. He said, those American bombers were marvelous. They didn't waste a single bomb in the middle of the airdrome, but buildings all around the edge went up in clouds of smoke and debris. It's also safe to assume that American fighters and American Army cooperation planes took part in the all-day air fights over the channel, fights which observers along the coast describe as the greatest they've seen since the Battle of Britain. On the water, it's possible that Americans played a vital part in the naval uh, activity that went uh, on over in the Channel. And back here in London, a large group of American Army, Navy, and Marine officers hovered today over maps, nervously scanning every report that came in. It was announced that they had helped plan the operation after joining the staff of Commando Chief Lord Mountbatten. One of them is Lieutenant Douglas Fairbanks, Jr. of the United States Navy. Tonight, all of Britain nervously, eagerly awaits more details. But until the operation is complete, the full story can't be told. And now, this is Robert St. John in London, returning you to New York. Thank you, Robert St. John. And now more details from the wires of the Associated Press. Military observers in London now see the possibility, if not the probability, that the American, British, Canadian, and fighting French commandos may have found a soft spot in the Nazi defenses. This possibility developed as the Allied attacked in the Dieppe area for hour after hour without a sign of let-up, using tanks, huge forces of planes, and other heavy offensive weapons. Despite official statements to the contrary, speculation increases that the commando shock troops may become a genuine invasion spearhead. Military strategy would dictate that the British have strong reserves massed in southern England, ready to take advantage of any soft spot the commandos might find in the German defenses. The first indication that the commando raid was turning into a full-fledged invasion probably would be word that the commandos were being reinforced. And those United States Rangers who fought on French soil today have been training secretly for their task for many weeks. Their tutors were the British commandos, seasoned by many small-scale assaults on the coasts of Norway and France in the past year. Men who play ball with hand grenades, who jump off 20-foot cliffs and think nothing of it. They've taught our rangers to kill silently and swiftly with all the forest skill of Robert Rogers, who led his rangers against the French and Indians in the 1760s. It was his name that our army borrowed to fit the duties of the American commandos, Robert Rogers, who stalked the backwoods and the frontiers of the colonies 
fighting off the French and Indians who threatened Britain's hold on her colonies and also the colonies themselves. The rangers, today's rangers, fight as skirmishers, not in groups. They attack from the rear, not in front, whenever possible. And they never give the enemy a break. They fight dirty, dirtier if possible than their unscrupulous enemies, the Nazis, the Japs, and the Stooges of Mussolini. They practice niceties of mayhem that would make Jack the Ripper turn pale. One of them, named Alex, a 20-year-old Scotchman, has a cute little trick of his own. He'll let you shove a loaded revolver into his stomach, and he'll guarantee to break your neck before you can pull the trigger. Another makes a specialty of shooting rabbits from an army jeep traveling at 60 miles an hour. All of these rangers wrestle and practice jujitsu in their spare moments, all in fun, of course, but woe to an untrained man out of condition who attempts to compete with them. In that ancient castle over there, which is headquarters for the rangers, they frequently ignore the stairway when descending from the upper floors. They've rigged a rope down the stairwell, and instead of using the stairs, they abseil down the rope. Now, abseiling is the simple device of looping the rope around one leg and just sliding down as fast as your leg can stand it. It's guaranteed not to hurt the rope, just your leg. Those American rangers are all volunteers from the regular army forces stationed in Europe. Nobody asked them to become rangers. They wanted to. Most of them are Westerners, like Samson One Skunk, a Sioux Indian from South Dakota. But then, of course, there is Puvate Chico Fernandez. He's from Havana, Cuba. And there's also Corporal James Haynes of Lexington, Kentucky. He used to work for Frank Buck, Taming Lions. If you ask Haynes what difference there is between his former work and his ranger job, he'd tell you, I don't notice much difference. It's pretty much the same. The battle for control of the seas goes on in full force today from one end of the earth to the other. From Brazil comes word that a regular cat-and-dog fight is going on between warplanes of that country and the United States on the one hand, and a pack of Axis submarines and at least one surface raider on the other. The first round went to Germany when its U-boat sank five Brazilian ships. And then a surface raider went into action off the South American bulge and bagged a medium-sized U.S. merchant vessel. Immediately thereafter, a Yankee pilot bombed and sank one of the Axis subs. And right now, fleets of planes and naval craft are out combing the South Atlantic in search of more of the attackers. So far, they have located and bombed two U-boats, one of them of enormous size, and they've escorted 13 Allied ships to safety from the danger zone down there. Survivors of the vessel sunk by that surface raider said that the German appeared to be of about 7,000 tons and that it was traveling about 20 knots. The rescued captain said that he believed the raider had at least six guns and that some of her armament was of 8-inch caliber. Whatever the final score in this great battle of the South Atlantic, it seems pretty certain that it will result in a declaration of war by Brazil against Germany. And there's also the possibility that neutral Argentina and Chile will break off their diplomatic relations with the Axis because of the unprovoked attacks. Anger is running high in Brazil itself, while newspapers in Argentina and Chile are almost equally bitter in their comment. They say that any attack upon Brazil is an attack upon all of Latin America, and that the republics of that continent must rally immediately to the defense of their neighbor. The total of enemy ships sunk or damaged in the Aleutian area now stands at 23. The Navy announced the latest sinking shortly after noon. The communique, which is the Navy's 108th of the war, said that a U.S. submarine had sunk a Japanese cruiser or destroyer in the western Aleutians. Conditions made it impossible to identify the enemy vessel exactly. In London, 
The British Admiralty admits that four of its warships were lost in last week's battle to push a big convoy through the Mediterranean to the island of Malta. But it adds that the rest of the convoy got through safely with vital supplies, while the enemy suffered staggering losses in the air. The Admiralty lists its losses as the anti-aircraft cruiser Cairo, the destroyer Forsyth, the aircraft carrier Eagle, and the cruiser Manchester, as well as several merchant ships. On the other hand, it says that 66 enemy aircraft are known to have been destroyed in the three-day battle, and that many others were probably shot down. Moscow admits today that the threat to Stalingrad has increased. Soviet forces under Marshal Timoshenko have fallen back in two vital areas, the Don River Bend and Piatigorsk, a sector 170 miles southeast of the Maikop oil fields. The Maikop fields are already in German hands, but were destroyed by the Russians before they were abandoned. The Nazi drive in that sector appears to be aimed at a railroad town of Georgievsk, while the German push in the Don River Bend is, of course, a full-scale move towards Stalingrad. A British source in London today says the Germans have reached the Don, but have not crossed it, and he admits that the Nazis have made some progress towards Stalingrad. Russian forces are fighting back directly, but it seems that their counterattack is spent. However, the Soviet dispatches say that Hitler has had to call up new reserves, that he is in fact draining Western Europe for new fighting men. An earlier Russian communique said the German advances had cost Hitler 1,250,000 casualties, twice those of Russia. A bulletin from London. The authoritative British Press Association said tonight that the chief objectives of the Dieppe attack had been achieved. Now a bulletin from Willemstadt, Netherlands, West Indies. Allied Navy and Army forces started search for enemy submarines off the south coast of Dutch Guiana after two torpedoes exploded on a beach. Here's the official announcement. Late yesterday afternoon, explosions were felt throughout the city of Willemstadt, and persons on the south shore of Curaçao saw water geysers thrown into the air at spots where two enemy torpedoes struck the beach. Appropriate action was taken immediately by naval and military authorities, and within a few minutes, depth charges had been dropped in the suspected areas. The Chinese High Command announces the recapture of Wenchao, the important port on the coast of Chengkiang province, which was seized by the Japs just one month ago. It has been retaken by troops of Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. However, the official Chinese communique acknowledges that their forces have abandoned Suichang in southwestern Chikyang. The victory and the withdrawal occurred the same day, last Saturday. A spirited defense of those patent pool deals between the German Chemical Trust and the Standard Oil Company of New Jersey was made before the Senate Patents Committee this morning by W.S. Farish, president of that company. The committee is investigating charges that the patent pooling has done a great deal to hamper America's war production of synthetic rubber. But Mr. Farish thinks differently, and he presented his defense before that Senate committee in a 36-page statement, somewhat as follows. First, he said that Standard Oil's contracts with IG Farben Industrie, the Nazi-controlled chemical trust, had resulted in enormous advantages to the American public. And he added that the United States got far more benefits from Germany than Germany ever received from us. And what do you think Hitler would give today to be able to keep America from using the discoveries and processes which Standard Oil now controls, Farish demanded. And then he went on to list some of those discoveries and processes. The things which America would not have except for those patent pools are as follows. 
the first process for producing 100 octane aviation gasoline. Synthetic tulol and synthetic ammonia, the two basic ingredients of TNT. Paratone and paraflow, which improve the performance of lubricating, hydraulic and recoil oils in planes, tanks, and cannons. And the processes for making the synthetic rubbers known as Buna, Butyl, and Vistanex. Parrish founded and wound up his defense by saying, those IG Farben contracts started us on the road which led to work on synthetic rubber. Within one month after Europe went to war, and more than two years before America went to war, we had eliminated all foreign interest in these processes for making rubber, and we were free to do it with whatever seemed necessary. As a result, the government is planning to make 700,000 tons of Buna rubber alone next year. The Army is going to operate another plant where production of war materials is threatened by a labor management squabble. President Roosevelt has just authorized Secretary of War Stimson to take over the S.A. Wood Machine Company plant at South Boston, Massachusetts. The chief executive signed the order at 10.45 this morning. And that's the news up to this moment. This afternoon you've heard from Robert St. John in London, and this is Radcliffe Hall speaking from the newsroom in New York. This is the National Broadcasting Company.